How's everybody doing? Oh, uh, this is good. All right, a rowdy crowd, my kind of people. So, is Pastor David here? He might be upstairs. Oh, he is here. So, last week, Pastor Dave preached. Yeah. Let me tell you about Pastor Dave. Just a couple things. Um, he's so sweet. Um, last week he texted me. He says, hey, really, you just take Saturday off. You know, just, we got this, you know, which is always nice to take a, you know, have a break from the pulpit for sure. But I'm usually here all three services anyway. And he just insisted that I take Saturday off and our girls were in town. And uh, we just had a family day. So uh, it was so sweet. It worked out great. I apologize to the Saturday crowd last night that I wasn't here last Saturday. But um, I just wanted to say thank you for that. That was really precious and sweet of you to do that for me, so thank you. Um, We're so fortunate um, to have Pastor Dave just as part of our church family, and just the way he brings the Word of God is absolutely remarkable. And it was just such a great message, and so thank you for blessing me that I can come on Sunday morning last week and just be blessed by your message. And and I just think it's good for our church. It's not just good for me, it's not just good for, for Pastor Dave, but it's good for our church to hear how God, you know, can speak through and use uh, the lives of others as well. And um, we're just so, we're so fortunate. So thank you. And then the, the third thing about Pastor Dave is um, I just can't say enough to him how much he means to me. Uh, I know many of you know him and know him well, and you know that this is true about Pastor Dave. He is one of the most selfless people I've ever met in my life. And um, I am just so thankful for him. And I tell him that all the time. It's just really remarkable. We love each other. And... Um, I'm thankful for you. So thank you so much, Pastor Dave. Um, So we got a lot to cover, and I'm really excited about today's message. Um, Some messages come a little bit more challenging than others, and this was certainly one of those that did, but but that's okay, right? Sometimes um, we're up for the challenge. Uh, I'm thankful for this church because... We're okay with hearing the Word of God. We're okay with hearing the Word of God unedited. Um, truth sometimes uh, is, is difficult, but I'm thankful that this is a church that embraces uh, that difficulty. Let me open with this. A couple quotes from C.S. Lewis on humility. We're in the Gospel of Mark, which is about Jesus, and, and uh, truly that's our best example of being humble. In the example of humility. So here's the first quote by C.S. Lewis. It says, May God's grace give you the necessary humility. Try not to think, much less speak, of their sins. One's own are a much more profitable theme. <laughs> and if on consideration one can find no faults on one's own side, then cry for mercy. For this must be a most dangerous delusion. (laughs) Cute. True. Second quote from C.S. Lewis on humility. Do not imagine that if you meet a really humble man that he will be what most people call humble nowadays. He will not be a sort of greasy, smarmy person, different language, who was always telling you that he is a nobody probably all you will think about him is that he seemed a cheerful, intelligent chap who took a real interest in what you said to him. If you dislike him, it will be because you feel a little envious of anyone who seems to enjoy life so easily. He will not be thinking about humility. 
he will not be thinking about himself at all. Great quotes on humility. We're in Mark. We're starting chapter 3. We've obviously done chapters 1 and 2. And what I would like to do is open up to the book of Mark. I want to skim real quick chapters 1 and 2 so we can kind of get up to speed as where we're at in chapter 3, okay? So Mark, the book of Mark... Chapter 1 opens up with John the Baptist. Hey, Jesus is coming. Jesus comes. He gets baptized. The Spirit comes down. And God says, this is my beloved Son in whom I'm well pleased. And Jesus goes out and does what? He preaches. And so in verse 14, Jesus goes out to Galilee to preach. And then he comes and recruits some uh, four disciples. In verse 21, he goes into Capernaum, into the synagogue to, to, uh, to preach there. In verse 29, he goes to the, uh, Simon's uh, mother-in-law's house and he heals her. The city shows up at the front door. Lots of healings going on. He splits to go pray. Uh, now that puts us in, in Mark chapter 1, verse 30, 38, 39. And the, the crowds are starting to form. And he says, let's get out of here so, so I can go preach. That's what I came for. And then uh, a leper comes and he heals the leper. And then uh, off he goes. And then we're in chapter 2. He comes back into Capernaum and uh, he forgives the sins of the paralytic. And this is, this is where it starts, those first of five stories where Jesus is kind of being countercultural with the Pharisees and the religious leaders. And so he forgives the paralytic, and then he goes out and he recruits uh, uh, Matthew, a sinner. And then he goes and, um, uh, where am I at here? Uh, verse 18, chapter 2, verse 18. Um, gosh, well, I'm just, suddenly I'm lost here. Ha, ah, that's funny. Yeah, anyway. Yeah, so he calls Matthew, then, uh, then he, uh, they glean on the Sabbath day, and then that gets us into, into uh, chapter 3, verse 1. So let's pick up there, chapter 3, verse 1. Sorry about that. So, chapter 3, verse 1, let's read that together. The first 12 verses. So he entered again into a synagogue, and a man was there whose hand was withered. And they were watching him to see if he would heal them, or to heal him on the Sabbath, so that they might accuse him. Verse 3, he said to the man with the withered hand, Get up and come forward. And he said to them, looking at the Pharisees, Is it lawful to do good or to do harm on the Sabbath, to save a life or to kill? But they kept silent. After looking around at them with anger, grieved at the hardness of their heart, he said to the man, Stretch out your hand. And he stretched it out, and his hand was restored. The Pharisees went out and immediately began conspiring with the Herodians against Jesus as to how they might destroy him. Oh my goodness. Verse 7, Jesus withdrew to the sea with his disciples, and a great multitude came from Galilee, from Judea, from Jerusalem, from Edomia, and beyond the Jordan, and the vicinity of Tyre, and the vicinity of Sidon. A great number of people heard of all that he was doing and came to him. Verse 9. And he told his disciples that a boat should stand ready for him because of the crowd, so that they would not crowd him or literally crush him. Verse 10. For he had healed many with the result that all those who had afflictions pressed around him in order to touch him. Whenever the unclean spirits saw him, they would fall down before him and shout, You are the Son of God. And he earnestly warned them not to tell who he was. Let's pray. Lord, as always, we gather to present our lives to you, to give you permission, Lord, to have your way with us this morning. God, remove me, remove us, so that you can indeed do what you intend to do in our lives personally and in our church collectively as the body of Christ. In Jesus' name, and everybody said, Amen. 
So there's a couple things I want to do this morning. We're going to make some observations. We're going to do like verse by verse in verses 1 through 6, and then I'm going to kind of clump 7 through 12 together. So we're going to make some observations, what is the text saying, and then we're going to make some implications, which is what is the text saying to us? That's what we're supposed to do, right? And the the two things I want to focus on when when we talk about what's the text saying to us, two things. We're going to talk about the softness of the Sabbath. And I think, do we have a slide for that? Yeah, oh, perfect. I forgot to do this last night. The softness of the Sabbath and then the hardness of the heart. So that when we get to towards the end, we're going to focus on the softness of the Sabbath and the hardness of heart. Okay? So, some observations. Go to verse 1. Mark chapter 3, verse 1. He entered again into a synagogue, and a man was there whose hand was withered. So he entered again into a synagogue where no doubt we're still in the city of Capernaum. And no doubt, why do you think he went into the synagogue? To teach and preach. Clearly, which I have up on the screen, in Mark 1.14, we see Jesus teaching. In Mark 1.21, in Mark 1.39, in Mark 2.2, in Mark 2.13, and now again in Mark 3.1. Jesus is all about teaching and preaching. As a matter of fact, we focused on this a couple weeks ago in Mark chapter 1, verse 38, where Jesus said, let us go out to other places. Why? So that I may preach there also that is what I came for, which ties in perfectly with the, with the text that Pastor Doug shared this morning. How will they hear unless we preach? The Word of God has got to be proclaimed everywhere we go. And then it says, the latter, so that's, he entered into a synagogue, and a man was there whose hand was withered, is the last part of verse 1. As we have noted, Jesus' allegiance is exclusively to the good news of God, the gospel of God, which he mentions in Mark 1, 14 and 15. And this is the last of the five stories that started in chapter 2, verse 1. This is the last of the five stories where Jesus comes and and he directly meets the needs of alienated people. In all five of those stories, Jesus is meeting needs of alienated and needy people. That's what he does and that's what we as a church are to do as well. And clearly, the most needy thing and the most alienated thing that exists in people's lives is that they are without Christ. That's the highest need. Verse 2, they were watching him to see if he would heal him on the Sabbath so that they might accuse him. For Jesus to heal this man on the Sabbath would be a deliberate violation of their accepted code. They were watching him, it says, in verse 2. That means they're starting to keep a record. They're they're starting to log things on Jesus' activities. You know, it would be like having our iPhone and going, oh, there's Jesus again, I better get this on video. And everything's caught on video. This is what they're doing. They're starting to log things. And this is the first, right here, this is the first of five accounts in the Gospels where Jesus is being watched. And it's sad, even pathetic, that all they can think about in this moment was what he is doing. Is it lawful? That that's all they can think about. Is what he about to do, is what Jesus is about to do, is it lawful? Never for a moment did they say to themselves, is it merciful? Is it lawful? Well, man, never do they say, is it merciful? We can see Jesus for a lot of things. And we can see what being a Christian means, a, a lot of different things. And what it means to be the church, that can mean a lot of different things. But we must always be merciful. Always. This is a very merciful church. And I'm so thankful for that. The church of all places must be merciful. Verse 3. 
He said to the man with the withered hand, get up and come forward. Jesus, <laughs> oh, he is a troublemaker, isn't he? He's determined to force the issue. And he does so by a public display, both of his healing power and of his status as the Son of God. As the man is summoned by Jesus to the center of the synagogue. One can imagine this man's horror, sitting there, minding his own business. He didn't seek out Jesus. Jesus pointed him out. And now he's being made, on some level, a public spectacle. And I'm certain, like any one of us, he surely wanted to be healed. But more than likely, he had no intention or joy in creating tension in the church. Sometimes ministry creates tension in the church. And if we're not merciful, we're going to get some things wrong as a church. Right? There's just nothing more sad than tension in the church when ministry is supposed to be happening in the church. May it never be here at TRCC, at the Rock Community Church. I pray that never happens. Verse 4. And he said to them, Is it lawful to do good or to do harm on the Sabbath? Oh, what a great question. Is it lawful to do good or to do harm on the Sabbath, to save a life or to kill? But they kept silent. The first part of the question about doing good or evil, that makes sense. It obviously refers to healing this handicapped man. For Jesus, human need poses a moral imperative. Let me say that again. For Jesus, human need poses a moral imperative. I must do something about this, is what Jesus is saying. Something's got to be done. Where good needs to be done, there can be no neutrality. Failure to do the good is to contribute to the evil. It is thus not simply permissible to heal on the Sabbath, but it's the right thing to do to heal on the Sabbath. It's not just permissible. It's what needs to be done. It's the right thing to do. The issue going on here in the synagogue is about whether or not Jesus will heal on the Sabbath. Not about living or dying, or so it seems. Like, why would that come in? Right? Is it lawful to do good or harm, to save a life or to kill? It's like, what? He's just got a withered hand. Like, how, how are we dying and, 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 right? Saving and killing. Like, what's that about? The second part of that question that Jesus poses refers to this, not to the disabled man, but to Jesus himself. If Jesus makes a habit of violating the Sabbath, they're going to take him out. That's what that means. Subtly but powerfully, the framing of, of the question in verse 4 links Jesus' fate inextricably with the man with the withered hand. To do good or to do evil refers to Jesus' response to the man with the withered hand. To save a life or to kill refers to the observer's response to Jesus. It's kind of pathetic. You heal, you die. You do harm by not healing, you live. That's what that question means. Mm. Sometimes doing good has a price. His response to the man with a bad hand will determine their response to him. Here's what's so sad about this. Evil is at work how many days a week? <laughs> Evil doesn't take a Sabbath. 
Evil doesn't have a Sabbath. But we're not supposed to do anything on the Sabbath day. God must have got that all wrong. That's not fair. They get seven days, we only get six. We can't fight that. Evil is at work every day, including the Sabbath day. Why should good not be at work as well? But they didn't see that. So Jesus questions them, but they, they kept silent. I hope we are never silent to the needs around us. I hope we're never silent to the needs around us. And that gets sticky and that gets interesting. But there are needs all around us. And as a church, we always have to wrestle with, wow, how do we come alongside those needs? How do we not be silent? Verse 5. After looking around at them with anger, with anger, and grieved at their hardness of heart, he said to the man, stretch out your hand. And he did, and it was restored. We know Jesus to be loving, full of mercy, full of grace, right? Jesus is the, is the good God of the New Testament. You know, God of the Old Testament, he's the bad guy, right? Jesus is the nice guy, right? The good cop, bad cop kind of thing. Like, you know, hey, Dad, I got this. I'm going to show up in the New Testament and make, you know, try to make us look good, right? So Jesus is always this loving, merciful, gracious guy. But how are we with seeing him as we see him in this verse as being angry and grieved? by the things that people do or don't do. Jesus is angry and grieved in this verse. For Jesus, the gospel of God, again in Mark 1.14, is different from proper religion, what we call religion, in that the gospel is about the disposition of the heart. The gospel of Jesus Christ, the gospel of God, is about the disposition of the heart, which cannot remain unmoved in the face of suffering. What is significantly interesting is that Jesus did not actually (laughs) touch or perform any act that can be construed as work. All he said was, stretch out your hand. What did he do? He didn't even do anything. If this was work, it was clearly of the non-physical variety. Isn't that interesting? Again, keep in mind that Jesus' annoyance at this point is probably not the result of this incident alone. This is the fifth incident where the religious leaders are pushing back on Jesus, starting in Mark chapter 2, verse 1. And they're pushing back, and they're pushing back, and they're pushing back. So it's a cumulative response, if you will. And what he's upset about is their hardness of heart. What's interesting... If we think that hardness of heart only goes with non-believers, we're we're kidding ourselves. It doesn't. Let me explain. It's a standard. This hardness of heart is a standard expression in the New Testament for those who cannot or will not perceive and accept the truth. When we're not in the truth, even when we are, it's difficult to keep our hearts soft and pliable before the Lord. But if we're not in the truth, we are in trouble. Our hearts will grow hard so fast it's used most commonly in the new testament with israel's israel the church god's followers with their failure to recognize jesus as their messiah it's kind of what's happening right here what's also interesting is mark uses it on two other occasions later on in his gospel to describe the very disciples that have been following him 
Look at Mark chapter 6, verse 52. Just a couple pages to your right. Mark 6, verse 52. So he's wrapping up the story with the disciples. Verse 52, it says, For they had not gained any insight from the incident of the loaves, but their heart was hardened. You know, so, so often we think, man, it would be easier. My life would be easier as a Christian if I was able to walk with Christ and talk with Christ and be around Him and witness His miracles. Really? They were there. If anybody had reason for their hearts not to be hardened, wouldn't it be them? It's like, I saw that happen, man. Like, I am all in. And their hearts are hardened. Ooh, nasty stuff happens when hearts are hard. Hard hearts just lead to nasty stuff. In the church, in our lives, in the world, hard hearts lead to nasty stuff. Look also in chapter 8, verse 17. Same thing. Chapter 8, verse 17. And Jesus, aware of this, said to them, to the disciples, Why do you discuss the fact that you have no bread? Do you not see or understand? Do you have a hardened heart? Wow. Back to verse 6. Mark chapter 3, verse 6. The Pharisees went out after Jesus was angry and grieved and they immediately began conspiring with the Herodians against him as to how they might destroy him. The Herodians were not a religious party. They were a group of Jews who were sympathetic to King Herod and supported his rule. Most of the Jews despised Herod and obeyed his laws reluctantly. So it was surprising that the Pharisees, who were strict Jews, would join themselves with these disloyal politicians. But it was a common enemy, Jesus, that brought the two groups together. It's been the same ever since. Mark shows us the irony as he ends these six verses, one through six. While the authorities deny Jesus the right to do good on the Sabbath, they conspire to do evil. On the same day. Is that just sad? The other irony, this is what I love, is that they conspire, it says in verse 6. That means to plot or to plan, while all the time not knowing that what they are doing is actually part of the Lord's plot and the Lord's plan. Isn't that funny? And so what if somebody were to explain it to him, say, well, you can plot and plan, but you know that if you plot and plan, that's actually part of the Lord's plot and plan. Well, if we don't plot and plan, then he's going to heal. And if we do plot and plan, then we're part of the Lord's plan. I don't know what to do. It's interesting. God is always in control. It's just funny to me. Moving forward now, his mission, Jesus' mission, will now experience some strong opposition. And we know that. Mark signified this by linking the commencement of Jesus' ministry with the arrest of John the Baptist. So John gets arrested, Jesus goes out. Jesus is about to get taken out, and then he gets some disciples ready to rock and roll. And then the disciples get taken out, and then we got Paul. And then he, right? And then on and on the cycle goes. So Mark's letting us know that this is just the deal. This is just the deal. There is opposition in following Jesus Christ. I don't like it. 
at this point, Jesus has already uh, uh, established a reputation as a blasphemer in 2 verse 7, a, a colleague of sinners in 2 verse 16, an apostate from religion custom, religious custom, 2.18, and a Sabbath breaker, 2.24. These sentiments lead to a contract on his life. That's what's developing here in Mark chapter 3, a contract on his life as the Pharisees went out and began to plot how they could kill him. Interesting. They should make a movie. With this entire, with Jesus' entire road still before him, he must conduct his journey now in the shadow of the cross. That's a burden. Knowing that the cross is, is, is pending. But he stays focused. And he continues to do what he's called to do. So what's interesting is we're, we're really just getting off the ground in Mark. We're in Mark chapter 3. And so we're like ramping up the book of Mark. But guess what? Now we're starting to ramp down. What happens in verse 13, which was not for today's? What's the heading before verse 13 in your Bible? The 12 are chosen? That's what I have. Right? So Jesus ramps up. He causes some trouble. He's like, I better get some replacements. It's interesting. Right? There's a contract on his life. I better pour my life into some people to keep this thing going. Interesting. Verses 7 through 12, let's read that all collectively. Jesus withdrew to the sea with his disciples, and a great multitude from Galilee followed. And also from Judea, Jerusalem, Edomia, and beyond the Jordan, and from Tyre and Sidon, a great number of people heard of all that he was doing, of all that he was doing, not what he was saying, that's sad, and came to him. And he told his disciples that a boat should stand ready for him because of the crowd, so that they would not crowd him or crush him, literally. For he had, not, for he had healed many with the result that all those who had afflictions pressed around him in order to touch him. Whenever the unclean spirits saw him, they would fall down and shout, You are the Son of God. And he warned them not to tell who he was. These verses, if you will, are what we call a bridge passage, not necessarily an introduction to the next section, they bring to a conclusion the first main section. So we're kind of concluding like, right, that, that, that honeymoon for Jesus is over. He's ticked off uh, enough people already, so they're, they're going to wipe him out. In response to this united opposition, Jesus simply withdrew, but he could not prevent the crowds from following him. And just so you know, I think this is cool, we've got a map. And I don't know, you know, you're probably not going to be able to see some of the detail, and that's okay. But at the top, the body of the water up at the top, kind of top right corner, is the Sea of Galilee. And that's where Capernaum is. So Jesus is in Capernaum. And it says that when he escaped to the shore of Galilee, people from all the way at the bottom of the map is Edomia. And Judea in Jerusalem is right above that. And Tyre and Sidon are along the coast, uh, north and west, about 50 miles Edomia is about 120 miles, and then the Transjordan, the other side of the Jordan, which the Jordan cuts between the Dead Sea and the Sea of Galilee. Already, I mean, 120 miles. People from 120 miles south back then, that's a long way. It's a long way today. And so what's interesting to me is that it helps them understand when you get into Acts chapter 1 when he says, go and, and, and make disciples and be my witnesses into Jerusalem and to Judea and to Samaria and the remotest parts of the earth. It doesn't seem so, they're not just in some little town going, how are we going to do that? Like Jesus is already showing that his impact can have global impact in such a short period of time. I just think that's really cool. And in, in Galilee, Judea and Jerusalem, predominantly Jewish. 
Edomia in the Transjordan, the, 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 the east side of the Jordan, was mixed Jewish and Gentile. And Tyre and Sidon, which was in the northwest, is almost entirely Gentile. So he's, he, his, his reach is, is big, and it's into multiple types of people, right? So when he gives this proclamation of the Great Commission, um, this makes sense to them. But these crowds that we read in these six verses were dangerous to Jesus' cause, of course, because they were not spiritually motivated. Sometimes we're just not spiritually motivated, even though we're around Jesus. Sometimes we do things for a lot of the wrong reasons, because our heart is hard. Yet Jesus received these people and healed them anyway, and delivered those with demons, because he's compassionate. But that's only going to last for so long. If you don't have the gospel message, that has true lasting value. The focus in these verses is exclusively on his miraculous deeds as the basis of his popularity rather than on his message or his teaching or the gospel, which we have seen from Mark's point of view as being essential. But Mark is enough of a realist to recognize that it was primarily the hope of physical and spiritual deliverance which motivated the crowds to gather from lands far away. They have not come out of a pure concern to hear the message of the kingdom of God, but to witness and to benefit from his healing power and his exorcism. All good things, just not the best things. The lakeshore along Galilee, in contrast with the synagogue, offered a neutral area where Jesus can now operate freely, unrestricted by either limits of space or disapproval. And I pray that our church will remain a place where Jesus can operate freely. Jesus needs a place to operate freely, unrestricted. Oftentimes we don't allow that. Some implications. Soft Sabbaths and hard hearts. Soft Sabbath. The word Sabbath means, <laughs> really means to cease and desist. Cease and desist. Oh, you mean the Sabbath. Praise God. Right? Cease, desist, or rest is what the word Sabbath means. And it's found in every section of the Bible. The Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, ties the observance of the Sabbath to two things. Does anybody know what those two things are? The Sabbath is tied to two things. What's the first one? Creation. Anybody know the second one? The Exodus. Interesting. Let's do the first one. Turn to Exodus chapter 31, verse 17. Exodus 31, 17. Exodus 31, 17. Great verse. We'll start at 16. So the sons of Israel shall observe the Sabbath to celebrate the Sabbath throughout their generations as a perpetual covenant. It is a sign between me and the sons of Israel forever, for in the six days the Lord made heaven and earth, but on the seventh he ceased from labor and what? And was refreshed. Oh, that is fantastic. God was refreshed. I didn't know he needed that. So creation. And the other one is Exodus. Turn to Deuteronomy chapter 5. A little bit to your right. Deuteronomy chapter 5, starting in verse 12. It says, Observe the Sabbath day and keep it holy as the Lord your God commanded you. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh is a Sabbath of the Lord your God. 
In it, you, sh- you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter or your servants or your animals or the sojourner guest who stays with you so that your servants may rest as well as you. You shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt and the Lord your God brought you out by a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Therefore, you are commanded to observe the Sabbath. Isn't that interesting? It's not just about, you know, Sabbath, we're supposed to rest. It's so much more than that. The Sabbath emphasizes the importance of rest, humility towards God, the holiness of the day in itself, care for the needy, the affirmation that God is creator and sustainer of everything. In us ceasing from labor, we are reminded of our true status as being dependent upon God. A twofold purpose of being a day set apart for the worship of God as well as for the rest and recreation or restoration of others. Pretty much everything God does is about that. Pretty much everything God does. It's not for holy or you know for religious purposes, it's for restoring, it's for breathing into people, it's for getting people closer to the Lord. Nothing of Jesus' actions or the actions of his disciples were contrary to the purpose and intent of the Sabbath. Nothing. As such, Jesus was not rewriting the law. He was actually fulfilling and clarifying the original law as described by the Pentateuch and the historical books and the prophets. He was fulfilling. That's what Jesus came to do. By his statement, the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath, Jesus claims that the authority of the Sabbath does not exceed his authority. Makes sense. Nothing exceeds Jesus' authority. Nothing. Jesus gives an indication as to its true meaning. That is, he places it, listen to this, the true meaning of the Sabbath. He places it against the universal horizon of God's intent that it benefit all of creation, not just Israel, not just his church. Everything Jesus does is to benefit everybody. So the things that he establishes is so that we can go and benefit everybody. Not just us. So thankful that we're not just an inward-focused church. So that's the soft Sabbath. Sabbath is soft. Hard hearts. In our passage here in Mark chapter 3, the main characters are Jesus, the Pharisees, and the Herodians. His disciples are present. We see crowds in this context, and we see unclean spirits. But perhaps the man with the withered hand best sums up the whole gospel message. Go back to Mark chapter 3, verse 5. After looking around at them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart, he says to the man, stretch out your hand, and it was restored as he did. Two things that we see that I think is the, the, the crux of this message. Restoration and hardness of heart. Restoration and hardness of heart. And sometimes those are at battle with one another. We have a hard heart. We're not leading to restoration. I got a picture of a vehicle up here. This is a restored. Anybody know what kind of vehicle that is? A what? A Ferrari. I'll give you $5 if you can get within two years. Just kidding. Ten. Oh, somebody else said 57 last night. It's a 1950. Is that beautiful? 
I'm not a car guy, but I'm fascinated when I see a restored car. It just, it just captures your attention. It does for me. This is a 1950 Ferrari 166MM, which I presume stands for Mark McGrath, but I don't know. Barchetta? 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 I don't even know how to say it. And it was found in a barn in Italy, and somebody picked it up for eight grand, and it was recently sold for over a million dollars. That is a beautiful, restored vehicle, paid for with about a million bucks. That's nothing compared to what God wants to do when he restores us, right? That he paid for it with his life. The heart of verse 5 is restoration and hardness of heart. Jesus was born. Think about this. Being born knowing that you were born to die. That your, that your life's purpose was to die in order to restore through the resurrection. That's, that's got to be a burden. This just has to be a burden. And isn't hardness of heart what prevents restoration? That's what's happening in these verses. Hardness of heart is what's trying to prevent restoration. God can't work where, where, where there's hardness of heart. It leads to opposing Jesus. It leads to things not being restored. It leads to anger and grief by our Lord. But we say, I'm not a Pharisee. I'm not a Herodian. Well, remember, we looked at the passages with the disciples in Mark chapter 6 and Mark chapter 8, how their hearts were hard. And remember, we talked about hardness of heart being a standard expression in the New Testament for those who cannot or will not perceive and accept the truth. So much rests on the truth and then submitting and softening our hearts all the time. Bad stuff happens with hard hearts. Consider this as we wrap this up. How often did Jesus have a hard heart? Take a guess. Never. Perhaps then, the ultimate end goal of being a Christian, the true Christ follower, is a completely unhardened heart. My heart gets hard once in a while. And it's just not pretty. But I repent. I continue to grow. And I continue to move forward. That's what God would want me to do, right? Our hearts can get hard so quick, so easy. And that's why we stay just rooted in God's Word. We would look at stuff and we read stuff. When I was reading those passages about the disciples, I was just so convicted. My heart gets hard sometimes. If then you and I are part of the Lord's redemptive work of restoration, we will do our best work when our hearts are not hardened. Satan will do his best work when they are. The progression in chapter 3, in verse 2, it says that they watched him. Also in verse 2, so that they might accuse him. And then in verse 6, so that they end up conspiring. And then at the end of verse 6, they destroy. They watch, they accuse, they conspire, and then they destroy. A hardened heart, we start watching things. Then all of a sudden, we're accusing things and people. Then all of a sudden, we're conspiring with others. And all of a sudden, we're just destroying things. The Lord, out of His love for us, and out of His purposes of restoring others to Himself, is always at work trying to soften our hearts. 
And so a lot of times things happen. We go, why? And so when things happen, I just go, okay, Lord, what are you trying to teach me? Where's my heart hard? My heart hard? Instead of just looking at things for what they are, some weird stuff happens, I get it. We've all been through, every one of us here has been through something. But praise be to God that he's always at work trying to soften our hearts. And he uses some interesting ways to do it, doesn't he? This is a tough calling. George Bernard Shaw, I'm going to close with this, and then um, I think Art's going to come up. And Is that right? Yeah. Let me close with this, Art, while you're working your way up here. George Bernard Shaw, small quote, he says, The worst sin toward our fellow creatures is not to hate them, but to be indifferent towards them. The worst sin toward our fellow creatures is not to hate them, but to be indifferent to them. I'm going to close this in prayer. Art's going to come up and lead us in a worship song, and then our prayer team will be available to your left and my right. Um, Let's pray. God, thank you for your word. Lord, thank you for this church that embraces the truth. Lord, we pray that where our hearts are hard, you would reveal that to us. Thank you, Lord, that you're gracious and merciful. But Lord, you've also made it clear that hard hearts grieve you and cause you to be angry when we're rebellious that way. So Lord, we need you now. Soften our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen.